We recorded this episode just after my guest, Mitzi Perdue, returned from the Ukraine war. She works on human trafficking and sex trafficking in particular, which happens a lot in war zones. In this episode, she describes what she saw directly. These are adult subjects, and you can imagine what sex trafficking means that she saw and talked about. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Mitzi Perdue. Mitzi, how are you doing? Well, I'm just so happy to be on your show. I don't know what to do with myself. Well, that's I, you've just made me bubble over with joy. Uh, thank you. Uh, and you and I go back a few years. We met at a book launch that you organized. And I'm going to read a bit of your bio. When I, that was like three or four years ago. Yes. And that the person who introduced us, I think, was Hara Morano, who, if you look online, she hasn't been on this podcast, but we've recorded conversations together. And one of the first things she told me about you was that you worked on human trafficking. And I always had it in the background. And just before we hit record, you told me that you're back from the Ukraine. And I want to get to that. And I think you want to get to that too. So I'm going to read a bit of your bio because um, any number of things in your bio would be enough to do an episode on. Uh, so, okay. Mitzi Perdue has had a lifelong fascination with what it takes to lead the best life. She got to watch up close and personal how her father co-founded and was president of the Sheraton Hotel chain. And she also got to watch her late husband, Frank Perdue, built his father and son chicken company into a company that, lay, that today employs 21,000 people. So right there, that sounds very interesting. Uh, you're growing up, your marriage, uh, both men. So going back to the bio, both men had tremendous focus. They had a pension for action, wide ranging interests. You've written books about these. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead. Mitzi is a businesswoman, author, master storyteller, degrees from Harvard, George Washington University, past president of the American Agro Women, uh, American Agro Women, and was one of the U.S. delegates to the U.N. Conference on Women in Nairobi, writes for American fre- foreign press correspondents. Uh, there's something else. You were the most widely syndicated environment column in the U.S., the environment in you. And I could talk about any of those. And, oh, and, but no, I'm going to say what, what brought us together this particular time was that we were talking about books, uh, emailing, and you put me in touch. I told you about what I was doing with sustainability and my reach out, my outreach. And you said, oh, that sounds a lot like Mark Victor Hansen. You should talk to him. And so his episodes were not long ago, a couple months ago, this year, I think. And you wrote a book on him called, oh, it was, um, it was the perfect name. Relentless. Relentless. Yes. He is relentless. <laughs> so first, thank you for coming aboard. And could, do we want to jump right into your visit to the Ukraine or do you want to talk about any of the things that I covered there? I think I'd like to, to jump into Ukraine because it's very topical and very recent. And the things that I want to talk about are going on right now. So this is where today is September 22nd. Uh, Russia invaded, um, when was the, uh, several months ago? 24th of February of this year, seven months ago. What led you to go there? How did you get there? What did you expect to do? And then as, as, a, as a foundation for what, what you observed? Right. How I got involved was it has to do with your friend, uh, Hara from Psychology Today. I wrote an article or a blog, rather. I wrote a weekly blog on, on human trafficking. And I had interviewed a man who he worked for an NGO that was on the border between Poland and Ukraine. And he told 
he got to see women who were trafficked and how they were tricked into uh, getting into a van thinking that they were being rescued and instead they're driven off and never heard from again. Well, I wrote a little bit about some of the tricks that the traffickers use to get women to go away with them. I wrote about this for Psychology Today. And then from my point of view, I mean, it feels like a personal miracle. But because I had Ukraine in the title of my story, and because it was about human trafficking, it came to the attention of a general who's head of police for the Kyiv region. And he has 6,000 people under him. So Kyiv region is a very large region. And by the way, it includes Chernobyl, which I got to visit. But mm. to get, get back to how I got invited, my story came to his attention. And pretty soon, I am on a Zoom to Ukraine from Kyiv with General Nebitov. And he's inviting me to come see for myself. And... Yeah, would I like to see for myself what I'm writing about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So something like 10 days later, I'm in Ukraine. And people sometimes want to know how you get there. You can't just fly to Ukraine. In my case, I flew to Warsaw, Poland, Mm -hmm. and then from there made my way to the border. And then the general was kind enough to have me picked up at the border for a seven-hour drive to Kiev. Now, there's a mix of you... I mean, obviously, you don't you want these things to stop, but you you know what you're going to see. I mean, is this? Do you have to prepare yourself mentally, emotionally? Actually, I saw things that still haunt me, and I'll give you an example. Uh-huh. When I crossed the border from uh, from Poland to uh, Ukraine, the crossing is at a town called Medica, and. As I'm crossing the border, it's uh, there from the parking lot where, where the car, where I left the car, a rental car. I was with another person and we left the rental car in a parking lot. Then there's about eh, maybe, maybe a 12 minute walk to the actual crossing. And while I'm walking towards the crossing, I see parked in a field, maybe a quarter of a mile away from me, a, a, a sprinter van, I think it's a Mercedes sprinter van, silver, and there are two quite pretty blonde Ukrainian girls talking with a couple of guys who are ushering them into the sprinter van. And the guy I'm walking with, his his background is he's an in intelligence, and he tells me, you're watching a trafficking incident happened exactly right now. Those two girls, they're going to get in that van. They're going to be driven away. And tonight they're probably going to be raped 30 times just to condition them to think that they're useless and broken. And you know, until they die or they're rescued, but more likely they're going to die, uh, they're going to be raped every night a dozen times. And they're probably... Yeah, the the destination of some of the biggest traffickers is for Turkey, but it it could also be various Arab countries in the Middle East. And the the reason this will haunt me till I die is I felt so helpless. I knew what these girls were heading towards. And, you know, at that distance, there was nothing I could do. But on top of that, the guy from intelligence who's also interested or actually specializes in anti-trafficking, 
and because he has a very vast background in this, you know, he knows a hundred different signs that, you know, something's wrong. Things that initially were invisible to me until he pointed them out. He said, don't stare at what you're, uh, what's going on. Keep your eyes ahead. Uh, he said, this area it's $150 billion a year enterprise trafficking is, and the traffickers are violent people. And, you know, your, your life is at risk if you interfere. And, you know, just the helplessness of knowing what's going to happen to these girls and knowing that I can't do anything about it. And as I said, it haunts me forevermore that I saw this thing and I couldn't stop it. And by the way, would you like to know some more about how somebody who's in intelligence recognizes what's going on that's invisible to us? Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of questions that come to mind. Also, uh, maybe the scope and scale of the of, and what got you into it in the beginning that led to this. What got me interested in caring about trafficking? It's 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 actually about oh, losing track of time, but about four years ago. I heard a lecture on human trafficking. And before hearing this lecture, human trafficking didn't mean anything to me. It was just sort of words that would glide over my head. Mm -hmm. But this, this lecture that I heard, you know, a life-changing lecture, it was a guy, his name's Paul Hutchinson. And his specialty is rescuing children. And in this lecture, I heard him say that the girls he rescued, typically they'd be 12 years old. They would have a life expectancy of about seven years before they're dead, and they're going to die from uh, suicide, drug overdose, murder for their organs. And he said, he said that, or he let me know that, you know, by some estimates, there are 40 million people who are being trafficked. And the life of one of those little girls, uh, he, he, he showed videos of a sting operation where he was able to, you know, he is posing as, as this billionaire who wants a whole lot of little kids to play with. And the sting operation was he got the, oh. the bad guys to come to an island with these girls. And then the police just would swoop down on, on the traffickers and, and the girls are liberated. But he had video from hidden cameras showing these poor, terrified little girls before they're rescued, you know, knowing that it's going to be another night of just rape, rape, rape. And, you know, having, having seen this and seen the videos and heard the lecture, I thought this is the most evil thing I've ever heard of. I can't unsee it. I want to do something about it. And that's how I got involved. And as for what I can do about it, you know, I'm searching my, my mind thinking, what in my background equips me to do anything? Because I'm not going to be able to rescue little girls. I'm not going to be able to help restore them to normalcy. You know, but what I can do is I can do fundraising, which I've done a good bit of in my life. And I can write about it because I am a writer by trade. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And I have to ask again, the the... The girding yourself, I mean, it's to call it nightmarish is, is not justice. For, I mean, how do you have to prepare yourself to, I mean, to go into what you're going into, you're going to see, I mean, you're, you're going to be helping, but you're going to be finding about, finding out about things 
and seeing things that yeah i've 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 seen things and been told things that I kind of think that I'm staring evil in the face, and by the way, this has changed my religious views because I think that i the amount of evil I see I want to be on the side that's against that, and so i'm I'm more spiritual than I was before and and then there's another part to this. I have a close, close friend. She's now in her 90s, but somewhere around 50 years ago, she was raped. It uh, it colored her whole life, the, you know, just the trauma of it, the somewhat inability to trust. And so when I heard about little girls being raped 12 times a night, 365 days a year, I'm thinking, you know, if if, if rape is so horrible that it influenced a girlfriend of mine to be a little bit off balance the rest of her life because of it, must it be like for a little girl to have that happen every night? So again, it was something that I couldn't unsee. And then your question about what does it take to stare evil in the face, to hear stories of people in cages who are only let out Mm -hmm. of, I mean, I'm thinking of one woman that I talked with. She was kept in a literal cage where she couldn't, she couldn't even really sit up. And she told me that she was really happy to be in the cage because when she was in the cage, she wasn't being raped and tortured. You know, it, it really is staring evil in the face. So how, how do I cope with that much evil? Uh, I'll, I'll share with you what I do mm-hmm. uh, because I'm aware that if I focused too much on the horrors that are out there, uh, I'd go nuts and I wouldn't be any good to anybody. So I'm very deliberate about respite, uh, spending time with friends. Uh, I I watch more YouTube than I ever have in my life just because, or, or actually I think I'm trying <laughs> to say Netflix, just because I need to get away from it. It can't be a steady diet of it. And and when I, when I reach a point of saying, um, you know, I'm going nuts, I'm going crazy, uh, I, I pull back because I know that there's only so much that I personally can take. I, do I hear right that it's it's given you meaning and purpose yeah. beyond what you've had before and that sustains you? It's not happy, but your life is more meaningful and purposeful? Well, I, I my purpose in life pretty much my whole life is I would like to increase happiness and decrease misery. And for a good bit of my life, I was sort of focused on increasing happiness for people, but decreasing misery, this this awful. Uh, it, I, I want to quote Mother Teresa, who said, the good that we can do, we must do. And it's immoral to be discouraged by the magnitude of the problem. If you can do anything, it should. And that makes sense to me. It reminds me of something I heard recently. I'm surprised I only heard it recently. Do what you can where you are with what you've got. I was like, that that says it pretty well. I love that. You know, another way of phrasing that, I, I grew up with the idea of bloom where you're planted. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you are, do what you can. And I, I'm feeling really grateful at age 81 that where I'm planted seems to be rather broad these days because to get invited to go to Ukraine. And by the way, at some point I want to I want to lift us up from the, the darkness and horror to the fact that there's some amazingly concrete things that we can do that could help stem this. 
I just remember the phrase I think that I said came from, I think, Teddy Roosevelt. And I came across it watching a video of Doris Kearns Goodwin after having read Team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln and slavery ending, making slavery illegal in the United States. Also, uh, it might have seemed, seemed insurmountable. And as I said, Abraham Lincoln, I think I caught you smiling there. Was oh, just no, you, I'm smiling because I read the book. Uh, and does that give you inspiration of, I mean, slavery in the United States? Oh, let me go back. Uh, abolition for me has been very inspirational. That in slavery had been around, it still remains, obviously, we're talking about it, but it had been around since before recorded history. And in the late 1800s, it, late 1700s, early 1800s, a few people, not that many, and all, I mean, in the U.S., okay, there, I should start, the, slaves rebelled, slaves pushed back, and I believe that's where it began. Then abolitionists took that up and ended legal slavery. I don't think anyone could have imagined that. Well, I have a particular hero, Wilberforce. Yeah. I think that it was 21 years where he just didn't get anywhere. And then things broke loose and, and you know, Decades before we ended slavery in the United States, it was ended in England. So uh, people can do great things, but do you know what? I'm, I'm not aiming that big because the problem is so huge. I think the, the highest I can aim for is to do what I can and join forces with others. And, you know, my hope, the, the UN is hoping that, uh, that in 10 years, human trafficking will be gone. And... Yeah, joining forces with a whole lot of people who have this aspiration. Yeah, that's what I want to do. But you know, the amount that I can contribute is not that big. But but as Mother Teresa says, uh, it's immoral to be discouraged by the magnitude of a problem. The good that we can do, we must do. So that's that's how I cope with the fact that I can't change it, but mm -hmm. I might be able to help a little here and there. So take us back to the Ukraine as you were alluding to. The, so you're, the general has invited you there. And how, how did things go? What did, what did you expect to have happen? What did you plan? What did happen? Well, I'm a writer, so uh, I almost feel that whatever happens, I can get a story. But my glory, the stories were bigger than, than I ever expected. Like, th this isn't something that it would be worth writing about, but I'll share it with you and, and our audience. Mm -hmm. The first night there, you know, it's a war zone. And at the hotel, they warned guests, you know, kind of standard operating procedure. You need to have your go bag right by the exit from your hotel room, you know, the door that leads outside. And your go bag needs to have your passport, any other documents you have, like, I don't know, your driver's license. Uh, it needs to have money and it needs to have any medications you might need. And if there's an air raid, your job, you don't get dressed. You don't even take the time to put on a bathrobe. You grab your go bag and you run down the stairs. And I think it was eight flights of stairs to the bomb shelter. And yeah, the first time, the first time I heard that, I thought, oh, that's sort of dramatic. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. Well, that night, my first night there, uh, two air raids, separate air raids. Oh, the first one was at two. I think the second one might have been 3.30. And there, you know, you hear the air raids. And then over the hotel intercom, 
uh, go down right now. Do not delay. And if if I'm remembering right, I think there's like three minutes that you have to get to the bomb shelter. And that's why there's no time even to grab a bathrobe, which I didn't. And there I am running downstairs in a skimpy little nighty, <laughs> seeing people that, you know, I never expected to be so scantily clothed, but everybody else was too. And there were about 20 people in the bomb shelter. And I learned something that I bet will be new to most of our audience. And that is the difference between pui and poo. Pui is point of impact for a rocket. And pool is point of origin because when, when the air raid is sounded, they know where the rocket took off from, but they can't tell you where the impact will be. I mean, they, they can say it's going to, it's going to hit Kiev region, but they can't say that it's going to be your hotel. So everybody has to go to the bomb shelter. Uh, it was, it was amazing. And I'd always been curious. You know, how am I going to react in a somewhat tense thing? Because, you know, in theory, it could have been the end of the Mitzi show. Mm -hmm. uh, for the period I was in the bomb shelter, my my reporter's personality took over. I I think I can honestly say that there wasn't a millisecond of fear because I was so busy observing, talking with people, just, you know, being a reporter. Which surprised me. I didn't know that I would act that I that the reporter instinct would take over, but it did. And I take it this was your first war reporting. You weren't a correspondent earlier. Yes, yes. And so I feel like this is laying context for the the situation because while that's while being in a war zone is uh, an unusual experience to say the least for most of us. Uh, you're there not to see a war zone. You're there to look at trafficking, if, if I understand right. Well, they're, they're so intertwined because the traffickers of the world are just drawn like magnets to wherever people are vulnerable. And if you're, uh, hypothetically, imagine for a moment you're a woman. This is 2022. You can be gender fluid for the moment. Mm -hmm. You're a woman. And it normally takes, by car, seven hours from... Kiev to the border. But because of breakdowns in transportation, one thing or another, it's actually taking you five days. You've, your home is now rubble because it was bombed. Your husband is off fighting in the war and you have no way to communicate with him. You got a nine-year-old daughter and you're scared for her. You're scared for yourself because you know, everything you have, you know, you're carrying in a little bag and it could be robbed or you could be raped and you're sleep deprived and you're hungry and you finally make it to the border, you are exactly the person that the trafficker wants. They want somebody who's just so worn down and vulnerable and traumatized that they're not thinking straight. And when that trafficker comes up to her after she's crossed the border and says very sympathetically, oh, you've had such a hard time. I have I have a place for you to spend the night, a nice warm hot meal, and we're going to help you find a job. And she doesn't know any better. She follows the nice guy into the van and is never heard from again. And by the way, some of them you know do get rescued, and you hear what did happen to them. Uh, one person that I talked with said that it actually two said that it would be very typical 
to completely destroy her spirit just that first night to rape her, gang rape her 30 times. So she just, there's just almost nothing left of her. And they're threatening that if she doesn't comply completely, that now that her daughter's going to be gone. And for escaping, uh, they've taken all her papers. They've, uh, you know, she's a total victim. But there are ways of preventing this. Yes, please. How do you? Okay, I'm going to invite yeah. you to be you again, and not and not this this poor woman who's getting into that silver sprinter van. Uh, General Nebitov says that in the huge majority of the, of the tens of thousands of women who end up trafficked, uh, if they had just had like a timeout, they make it to the border and. Yeah, I have friends who describe the women who at this point, who they're, they're very carefully picked out by the traffickers. There will be the tra- traffickers work in teams and there will be a spotter. And the spotter is on the Ukrainian side. And that spotter knows how to interpret body language. And he'll look at their shoes. Is this a woman who's been walking for five days? Are her, show, are her clothes just rumpled and she's been sleeping in them for five days? And she has the thousand-yard stare, which means you're just sort of vacant. You're out of it. You're out of your wits. You're traumatized. Okay, the trafficker is going to take a photograph of her with his cell phone, but he's going to make it look as if he's taking a selfie. He's got his back to her, and he raises the phone up high enough so that he can take a picture of her, even though it's looking as if he's uh, taking a picture of himself. He will quickly transmit that to the trafficker on the other side, and he'll say, "You know, look at the look for this girl. You know, she's a perfect uh, prospect. Uh, she's she's got the thousand yard stare. She's out. She doesn't have her wits about her. Uh, so go for the girl in in that yellow blouse." And so the girl crosses, and then there's this guy who's kind of expecting her, and he'll play on on several things. Among them, he'll say, you know, the van is leaving in 10 minutes and there isn't another until tomorrow. And she just gets in. Okay, so how do you stop that? Yeah. General Nepitov wants to create shelter houses. And for something like, say, fifty dollars to $80,000, you can rehab an existing building and put cots in it, maybe 80 of them, and have have the girls who are vulnerable have a timeout at the border before they cross. And at the before they cross, there will be a hot meal, and there will be friendly people who will be warning them what's on the other side. And there will be counselors. There will be... Uh, but most of all, they're going to get a warning of what they're up against. Because in most cases, the girls you know, are much too... I should say women, but, but I've seen girls. They're, they're just so traumatized, they're not thinking... Right. But if you could have like a 24 hour timeout to gather your wits about you and be warned, uh, you're not going to fall into the hands of the traffickers. So what I'm doing these days is I'm raising I'm raising money for for two causes. One is to build shelters where there would be a timeout so that the girls don't just walk across sheep led to slaughter. Mm. No, they're going to walk across rested, fed and warned. I want to hear more about that. I'm also the traffickers. 
themselves. I don't know if you've met or know them or their profiles. And then where the money's coming from in the first place, the buyers, the, is this something you've also researched or learned about? I know a little bit about it. I don't want to pose as an expert. Uh, my expertise, here's how deep it isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I think I've written way over 100 articles, and they come from interviewing the experts on this. And uh, for for where where the buyers come from, I I have interviewed like psychologists. I've I've interviewed heads of trafficking organizations, and I still feel that I don't have a grasp of what it's about, but I'll tell you the the best of my understanding Mm -hmm. that we think it's about sex and sex gets into it. But one of the bigger factors is, you know, the things that make a pedophile, for instance, why they want young girls. Uh, It's now I, what I'm about to say comes from like one of my sources is the retired head of the department of psychiatry at Langone Medical Center. Mm-hmm. He told me because he treats both the victims and he also sometimes ends up treating the perpetrators. And he said for the perpetrators, uh, he said flatly, it's not about sex. It's about power. Mm-hmm. They get off on power. And, you know, the more helpless the little girl is, the better they like it. And, you know, that that's so, as I said, I have trouble grasping this because to me, it seems it's got to be about sex. I mean, sex trafficking has to be about sex, but I have to entertain the likelihood that he knows one heck of a lot more about it than me. Uh, and then I'm thinking of a, of a woman who was trafficked from age, oh, Lord, from, from preteen to 17. And she told me that... The perpetrators particularly liked her you know, before her boobs developed. And then later on, uh, when she was 17 years old, she was a senior in high school now. And she said she completely disassociated her life from being trafficked at night, being a student during the day. And she just pretends to be a normal student. But her life was so hellish to her that she really wanted to die. She, But she also told me that that she was scared of pain, so she didn't want to. She didn't want to shoot herself. She didn't want to slit her wrists. She wanted to starve herself to death. She went from 126 pounds to 87 pounds. She was skeletal. She had no boobs, and so I asked her, "You know, how how could they? How could it was her grandfather who was selling her? How how could he find buyers for somebody with a skeleton and no boobs?" And she said that she felt that it was even more of a turn on when when she was just so pathetic and helpless. It's it's hard not to pause. I hope you don't mind if I keep asking questions. Uh, no, I, I mean I will answer to the very best of my ability, and I don't want to pretend, pretend that I know more than I do. But I will share with you what people have told me, and. You know, I've had some extraordinarily intimate conversations with with women who've been trafficked and what it felt like. And, and you know, one of the things that, well, again, I'll do my best to recreate what I was told. One of the women told me that she, her, her trafficker did so much to undermine any sense of self that she had 
that she felt that she deserved this. I mean, she just, it, it wasn't, I'm not going to describe it as Stockholm syndrome. I think it was worse. I think her trafficker convinced her that, that she was not as valuable as a dog and that this was what life was about for her. She said that she had no ability to uh, to try to escape. And and by the way, people who write on the subject of, of trafficking, uh, it's called conditioning. And you want to break the girl's spirit so badly. I mean, her that her spirit is so badly broken uh, that she doesn't even try to escape. And at that point, she's on automatic. And that's a goal. If you're a trafficker, you'd really like those girls that you're trafficking to be on automatic. Are the, the, the traffickers, are they simply in it for the money or are they also getting something out of it? That, what's, uh, what's the trafficker's perspective? Okay, again, I, I will share with you what I've been told. I actually once did talk with a trafficker, but here's, here's I mean, it's complex and I'll, I'll do my best. A fair number of the traffickers were once trafficked themselves. A huge number of the traffickers were abused as children, sexually abused as children. In fact, I'm not personally aware of, of there being such a thing as a trafficker who, who wasn't abused. I mean, there may be, but I, I hear so consistently that that they were abused themselves. And this is how they make sense of life. But on top of that, it's lucrative. Uh, you, If you're in New York, you're running four girls, you're making a million dollars a year. Um, so a million dollars a year? On the other hand, you're going to have a heck of a lot of problem laundering that money because you just can't. Say you want a Lamborghini and you've got, you've got a million dollars that you've made this year, mm -hmm. but you can't go into the Lamborghini dealership and slap down $350,000 because he'll say, um, Mr. Spodek, would you please tell me where you got that money? And if you say trafficking, he's not going to like it. If you don't tell him something convincing, uh, boy, uh, even if you do tell him something convincing, there's going to be a file opened on you uh, from people who track money laundering. Going back a bit when you said it's not just about sex. So I think of sex trafficking. Sex is the modifier. Trafficking seems to be the, is the noun. So there's other trafficking. I think of child soldiers and, and other slavery. Is there, do you look at other trafficking? I write about every, every lead that somebody tells me. If I think it's a story that, that, would, that I could write about, uh, I'll write about it. And like a recent one was uh, the palm oil that that we have. Uh, like palm oil is an ingredient in like hundreds of different products that we have in this in the United States. Palm oil is from palm trees, uh, very often in Malaysia, and there's a huge amount of labor trafficking in the palm oil industry. And the way it works is, oh, I mean, it actually, it's kind of sex trafficking mixed with uh, labor trafficking. But supposing that you've been, that 
Okay, let's again take the case of a woman, and this is one that I know of. Uh, she's working on this huge palm oil or palm plantation, and you know, she's not getting paid anything. And if she doesn't produce enough, she's going to be beaten. And also hanging over her head is if she if she isn't producing enough of whatever she's there for, the the supervisor tells her, I'm not satisfied with your rate of work. Uh, I'm going to sign you today to the such and such area, which is actually six miles away from from where they're living. Uh, and there's nobody else around. And she knows perfectly well that she will be raped. So her incentive uh, to toe the line and, and deliver whatever she's supposed to uh, in harvest or doing whatever you do to get palm oil. Oh, I mean, she does not want to be raped again. She's She just becomes very compliant. She doesn't step out of line. Or another, you know, another huge source of, of labor trafficking on ships. Oh, I, I dearly hope that this doesn't happen at all in the United States. It might, but it's, it, how about in, in some Asian areas, it's prevalent. Uh, you're on one of these fishing ships. And maybe you're on for half a year and you're not paid a penny and uh, you're not getting fed if you don't do the work. And if they really are irritated at you, uh, they just push you overboard. You're shark food. And remember, 40 million people. By the way, you can hear the uh, uh, there's another statistic that's kind of going around 28 million people. It depends how you're how you're categorizing it. Because they also, there's a whole other category of human trafficking. And it doesn't sound like human trafficking, but in the end, it kind of is. And that is child brides. A child bride gets sold, maybe at 10 years old or something. And basically, she's a slave of her husband from then on. Uh, She'll never get an education. She steal everything that he wants or uh, she won't live. By the way, I'm probably painting with too broad a brush. Maybe there's some child brides where it's great, but the stories I've heard are just dire. Or another form of, of labor trafficking that, that I've written about and talked with people who've, who've been through it. Say you're a Filipina woman and you've got, you've got three children to support and you can't get a job in the Philippines that, that gives you enough to, uh, to support your three kids. And you see this ad. For a houseworker in, oh, let's say Hong Kong, and it pays well, and you go to the employment agency, and they say, "Yeah, they're looking for somebody just like you. It's a professor and his wife, and there will be very light duties, and you, uh, you, you'll have your own room, uh, and you'll make enough money that you know in a year you can be sending money along the back home along the way to your to your mother, who's going to take care of your kids." So the grandmother's taking care of the kids and you'll have money to to help them. Uh, and so she signs her willingness to do this. She arrives probably not in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong sounded safe to her, but she'll end up in some. I guess I don't want to I don't want to say the names of countries because I don't want to paint with a black brush the of any country. But there are countries where she may end up. 
And instead of having her own room, nope, she's sleeping on the floor in the kitchen. Uh, it's 18-hour days. It's uh, it's no pay whatsoever. They've taken her passport. They'll just beat her brutally if she doesn't just work for them all day long. Uh, she never gets out. And she went, she took this job because she wanted money to pay for her kids. Uh, no such luck. If she ever escapes, and the, the case that I know about, the woman did escape. Uh, she gets back to the Philippines and her family now is helplessly in debt because they never did get any money from her. You know, there, and you know, another one that just happens all the time. If you're pretty, you're a young girl and you're pretty, a trafficker will come up to you or to your parents and say, I represent a modeling school. She's going to be the next you know, supermodel. Uh, have her come with us and you know, she'll, she'll make tens of thousands of dollars and she can send it home to you and, and she'll be famous throughout the world. Nope, they're traffickers. You know, she'll end up being trafficked and quite likely until she dies. So trafficked to death. It's it's just widespread. The the, the modeling schools, you know, they're they're honest, legitimate ones, mm-hmm. but good lord, are there non-legitimate ones? And they particularly like East European women. But but they 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 will go after women anywhere. I mean, if you're pretty, you're in danger. And by the way, uh, when you when you or your parents accept this chance to be a model, you have no idea in the world the evil that lurks behind this pleasant offer. Back so back to the Ukraine, your visit there. The general who brought you there, what was his intent in bringing you there? Was it for you to report? Was it for you just to see? Was it for him to learn from you? He invited me because he said. The world press covers like the battles. They cover the refugees. Uh, they may even cover the, the rationing, but nobody's covering. He told me that nobody has yet covered what the police suffered from the invaders because totalitarians do this all the time when they're invading a country. It's very demoralizing and traumatizing if you're a citizen of, let's say, Ukraine that your country's under attack, but you, but if you're the bad guys, if you're the invaders, you can make it even worse by completely dismembering the police departments. The first thing you'll do is you'll bomb the police stations. You'll destroy their cars. You'll destroy their communications. And then you empty the prisons. And it's it magnifies the trauma of the invasion when there's no police protection. The, the the robbers, the looters, the arsonists, the murderers, they're just running loose. And you can't call the police because the police station doesn't exist anymore. And then on top of that, uh, domestic violence. Police, you know, a, a big part of the mission of police is to help keep a lid on domestic violence. And domestic violence is just skyrocketing in Ukraine right now because up to a third of the population has PTSD and an outlet for post-traumatic stress disorder, is violence on your intimate partner. 
So you know, the need for for help is just skyrocketing, and the police you can't even call the police because the communications are gone. Or or even simple things like directing traffic, or or if there's it's a city without police, it multiplies the trauma of the invasion. And and that he's he, Nebi Nebitov told me that that nobody's covering this. And so why do we want this covered? Well, I, I mentioned that I had two things that I'm raising money for. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I hope people get out a pencil and paper because I'm going to give a place for a $10 donation. Please. Uh, I'll, I'll give it in a moment. I'll give people a moment to to get ready for it. But And we'll put the links in the notes. Okay. The first, the first one is the shelters. If we can raise $80,000, we can save tens of thousands of girls from being victimized at the border or trafficked at the border. But the other one, oh, the, a little geography lesson, Chernobyl is, I think it's about eight miles, or at least the police station is about eight miles from the Belarus, Belarus border that the invaders crossed to get into Ukraine. Well, in true dictator style, wanting to demoralize the population, uh, they bombed the Chernobyl police station. They also bombed 23 cars. Uh, they destroyed the ability of the police to communicate. Well, the Chernobyl police, you might wonder, why do you need police in an area that's irradiated and you, you can't go in because you know, it's a thousand mile, thousand square mile exclusion zone where there's, you know, there are pockets of very lethal radiation. So why do you need police there? For an extremely important reason. The job of the Chernobyl police is to keep poachers out because the poachers come in and the Chernobyl exclusion area, once there are 385,000 people who live there, they have scrap metal like old cars or just one thing or another. There's thousands of pounds of scrap metal for each uh, each Chernobyl resident, the illegal scrap metal poachers come in and they take the highly irradiated, you know, mortally dangerous scrap metal, take it out and sell it on the global market. The job of the police in Chernobyl is they know where they keep the poachers out of Chernobyl and they can do it when they had when they had the police cars and the communications, mm-hmm. they know where the scrap metal is. They know where they know where to patrol, and they they can act as a deterrent because you catch a scrap metal poacher and you can put him in jail for fifteen years. So there was a great big deterrent, and the irradiated metal that would come out it was just a small trickle compared to what it is today, because right now today, with the police, their ability to to control the poachers is gone. The poachers just have a free reign to bring in their trucks, load it up with highly irradiated, irradiated material, sell it in the global market, and there will be countless people who, you know, five years from now, they'll get a tumor or blood cancer or their teeth start falling out, and they don't know what caused it, but it might be the irradiated doorknob made from scrap metal from from Chernobyl. And this is, you know, the scrap metal mark 
scrap metal market is global. And But that's the bad news. The good news, what I'm raising money for, is if we could, you know, even one additional car replaced would make a huge difference. And if if among our audience, there's somebody who has contact with uh, with General Motors or Ford or, or some big car company, they might just choose to donate 23 cars. And if they did, oh, they'd get global publicity for it because there's a health crisis that is affecting the world. There are going to be people who will will get radiation sickness unless unless this is stopped. A car company could just be you know, such a global hero in something that's non-controversial. I mean, imagine the, the cars that were there were Chevrolet. Imagine if Chevrolet would use part of their advertising budget to buy 23 cars. Those 23 cars, uh, they can be bought in Europe and sent to, to Ukraine. They'll be fitted out you know, as police cars and go to Chernobyl, and we could we could effectively stop this tsunami of highly irradiated, deadly scrap metal coming out. But, okay, now let's get to the point where I'm asking people for $10. One of the things that I wish could happen is the Ukrainian police, they're, they're, they're working so hard to protect the public and to keep morale up. I wish that people would donate $10 or more, if you're so inclined, to a fund that, and you can choose, you know, do you want it to buy police cars or would you like it to create shelters? If you go to ulet.org, and those are the initials of Ukrainian Law Enforcement Training. So the letter U, as in Ukraine, L-E-T, I think I just gave the wrong address. It's youletgroup.org. If you go to that website, there's a place where you can just press the button for PayPal or your credit card. And my, my dream is that we could have thousands of people making donations Big or small, but the small really count because I want to be able to go back to Ukraine and say, look, there are Americans who value what you're doing. They understand that you're trying to stop trafficking, that you're start trying to stop deadly radiation. Uh, here are their names. And if somebody wants to be anonymous, that's fine. I can just list anonymous. But wouldn't it be neat to have a check for $100,000? Do you, so this is, this is your organization or an organization that you're working with or both? Is it joint? Oh, I, I have co-founded it. The person who's intelligent in intelligence, uh, his name is Stephen Komarek. Uh, he and I have set it up. It's a 501c3, so it's tax deductible. And the money goes from us to General Nebitov in Ukraine. And, Right, and I will put the link in the notes for everyone to click there easily. Okay, and can I repeat it? Because I think I got it wrong the first time. I left out the word group. So youletgroup.org. So U-L-E-T-G-R-O-U-P.org. Exactly. Okay. And you, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about how this has changed you. I mean, this has changed you. 
the, this work, this knowledge. Did you, I mean, to some extent, I feel like once you got started, you felt compelled and you couldn't stop. Oh, I don't have a choice. Tell me more. Can you share more? Yeah. Once you've seen that evil and if you know that, that you can make any contribution to combating it, I feel I don't have a choice. But on the other hand, oh, I'm 81 and I feel that I've got the energy. I mean, this is how it feels to me. I feel I have the energy of a 20 year old because this, this, cause is so compelling and you know i I love being 81 and and still having energy and i don't think i'd have that energy if i didn't have this cause that's very intriguing to me because i i mean for me environment sustainability leadership is very it, it gives me energy and i think it's from the outside easy to look at these things and say oh I just, I just got to put the kids through college or something like that. And, but your, your experience is something I'm experiencing is it gives you energy. It's, uh, it's, of course, we'd rather live in a world where these things didn't happen, but if they happen, we'd much rather do something. I think I'd give my life for it not to be happening. I think I'd give my life for it not to be happening. But since that's not on offer, it's not on offer that we've got a perfect world, um, then we do what we can. Do you feel like you're missing out on anything that you're not doing? I mean, if you're doing this, you're not doing other things. And a lot of people feel like, but I, you know, so much I give up. Do you have that feeling? Well, but uh, I, I confess that I feel intense need for respite now and then. So playing with grandchildren or watching Netflix. Um, but other than that, uh, I don't have a life and I'm no fun. <laughs> because of all of this or because you're boring? Uh, and boring, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're very boring. And uh, how do you do you, I mean, before you went to the Ukraine, I would imagine you were looking more globally. Are you now much more focused there or are you still keeping a global focus? Is it because there's a war zone, there's a war there? Has it just amped it up so much more or is it is. Well, okay. I, I will answer that as honestly as I can. Uh, my focus right now is like 98% Ukraine. And, but the reason for it is I absolutely fell in love with the people there. I, I watched, you know, I, I bet I met, I could have met 50 people in law enforcement and I just loved every one of them. I saw how hard they're working under so much stress. I, I just, I fell in love with all of them. I take it you're going back at some point? Well, I don't want to go back until I've got something to show for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they, they've had this fabulous hospitality. but And I've, re- I've had four articles so far published. And I think there's another one that's pretty close. Um, but I would like to have like 12 articles published. And I would like to come back with enough money either to buy uh, a shelter or to rehab a shelter, or uh, you know, my absolute dream would be to accompany 23 Chevrolet cars. But, but I, feel, I feel that I don't want to impose on their hospitality again until, until I can reciprocate. I mean, to me, the reciprocation is they gave me enormous hospitality. Uh, I want to reciprocate by, by helping their cause. 
if someone's listening to this and they've just given 10 or more dollars and they want to learn more, they want to do something more, where might they go? What might they do? The same website, because the same website, oh, there's part of it. Um, and just to repeat it, it's you let the letter U, as in Ukraine, L-E-T dot org. G-R-O. G-R-U-P. Yeah, I've got to have it's so new that it doesn't roll off the tongue yet. But you let group dot org. There's there's a section in it which uh, it's a contact contact us section uh, in which I invite people who would like to communicate. Tell us your name, your email, and if you choose where you're from. And then there's a paragraph where you can say, uh, "This is how I'd like to get involved," or "Tell me how to get involved." We'll answer either. And we're coming up on the hour and partly I'm interested in learning more and partly I'm, is there anything we didn't cover that's something big to, to cover before closing? Yes. And it's very upbeat. Great. Oh, I have an opinion on, on why Ukraine's going to win. That sounds very, yeah. Oh yeah. When did you get back? I got back about mm, three weeks ago. Okay, so done being jet lagged. And how how long were you there for? I was there five days. Okay. And why is Ukraine going to win? Okay, this, uh, I mean, I'm prepared to be wrong, but nevertheless, it's an opinion that I hold. The first day there, I noticed that uh, a woman who was accompanying the bodyguards, uh, she was, she's from the press part of Kiev region police. But she had, you know, a beautiful manicure, you know, kind of nice, attractive red nails. And I was thinking, darn, we're in a war area, and yet she's looking good. The next day, she had redone her nails, and this time they were uh, like blue, yellow, blue, yellow, blue, yellow, the, the colors of the flag, but a very nice, attractive manicure. So I started noticing the other Ukrainian women that, that I'd meet, you know, whether in a restaurant or ladies' room or an office or a store or a public park, you know, just wherever, I began noticing that pretty much every woman I saw had had taken care of her nails. And this was shocking to me because I would have predicted that um, if you're under that much stress, you'd kind of let yourself go. Mm -hmm. But no, they didn't. And so I went to London to visit a friend after leaving Ukraine. And I mentioned this to a guy who's a professor at Kent University, and he studies World War II. And I I commented about this amazing thing about the women who didn't seem demoralized, who were still looking beautiful or, or had beauty in their lives. And he said, this happens in countries or among people who refused to let their spirits be demolished. And he told the story of during World War II. He said this, the story I'm about to tell was repeated many times, but there's there was this prisoner of war in, in one of the concentration camps, and he was being starved to death. He, he went in at like 220 pounds, and he was 136 by the time the war was over, and, and he got out of there. But every day he would save a few crumbs of bread. 
to attract a bird that would visit him each day. And when the war was over and he was out, he told people that what kept him alive was the beauty of that bird, the remembrance that that there is beauty in life, that it's not just all this horrible hellscape that, that he was living through. He said that beauty of that bird kept him alive. And my my professor friend from England, his view was that what the women were doing, I, they, they might not do it consciously. I mean, he told me they, they might not be thinking this out. But he said that, in fact, it's kind of a symbol, symbolic. Uh, I'm going to use a Ukrainian word because it's very impolite in, in our language, Idi Nahui Putin which means uh, Mr. Putin do something anatomically impossible to yourself, mm. that it's a just giant F you to Putin, that they weren't going to let their spirits be demolished. And that made me realize that almost wherever I went, even whether it's a bombed out police station or a park or wherever, somebody was tending flowers. They were clinging onto, or clinging maybe the wrong word, but they were allowing into their lives beauty. And you know what they're fighting for, and that that they're not going to allow themselves to be totally demoralized as Putin wanted. The, you know, it, it recalls *Man's Search for Meaning*. Viktor Frankl. Yes, yes, yes. Who wrote about Auschwitz? He wrote about bliss and love, and constant, perpetual source of inspiration for me, and not in some theoretical sense, but practical that. He was a human being and he could turn his situation into that. And I look around me, whatever, ever since reading that book, anytime I'm in some situation, I'm like, Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz and he was happier than me now. If he, and he's no more human or less human than I am. And your story is, uh, it's easy to say, well, that was a long time ago. I never met the guy. He's not alive right now. But you're saying it's happening. You're seeing it. You you are seeing it happening around you. Yeah, and and by the way, the closeness that I ended up with. I told you that I'd fell in love with the police, but I also fell in love with Ukrainian people. I mean, the number of people, like mothers, where a woman and I are just hugging and crying, oh, uh, and and crying not not out of uh, bitter unhappiness, but just out of recognition that we're human and we love each other. And that's why I think that, that Ukraine's going to win, because Putin has not, I think, demolished their, their spirit. And it sounds like they are resilient. sounds like an understatement. They're using the situation to create yet more resilience, to create more spirit. I can't say the word in, in Ukrainian that you said. And by the way, it isn't that Eastern Euro- European women all paint their fingernails. No, because I was in Poland uh, my sixth day. I was in Poland, and I'm carefully noticing my fingernail test. Uh, almost nobody was wearing nail polish. I mean, there might have been somebody here and there, but I didn't see it on the scale that I saw in Ukraine. So I do think it's consciously or not, you know, those beautiful fingernails or the flowers that I saw – it, it, it was a statement of, Mr. Putin, you are not going to destroy and crush our spirits. 
I could ask more, but I think this is a great place to end because it's a, you have a big smile on your face. I got a big smile on my face, despite what we were, what you were talking about. Mitzi Perdue, thank you very much. It's been a joy to talk with you. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.